10 mental models for learning. A mental model is a general idea that can be used to explain many different phenomena. Supply and demand in economics, natural selection in biology, recursion in computer science, or proof by induction in mathematics. These models are everywhere once you know to look for them. Just as understanding supply and demand helps you reason about economic problems, understanding mental models of learning will make it easier to think about learning problems. Unfortunately, learning is rarely taught as a class on its own, meaning most of these mental models are only known to specialists. Today, I'd like to share 10 that have influenced me the most, along with the references to dig deeper in case you'd like to know more. Number one, problem solving is search. Herbert Simon and Alan Newell launched the study of problem solving with their landmark book, Human Problem Solving. In it, they argue that people solve problems by searching through a problem space. A problem space is like a maze. You know where you are now, you know where you'd like to go, but you don't quite know how to get there. Along the way, you're constrained in your movements by the maze's walls. Problem spaces can also be abstract. Solving a Rubik's Cube, for instance, means moving through a large space of configurations. The scrambled cube is your start, the cube with each color segregated to a single side is the exit, and the twists and turns define the walls of this problem space. Real-life problems are typically more expansive than mazes or Rubik's Cubes. The start state and the end state and the exact moves are often not clear-cut. But searching through the space of possibilities is still a good characterization of what people do when they solve unfamiliar problems, meaning when they don't yet have a method or memory that guides them directly to the answer. One implication of this model is that without prior knowledge, most problems are really difficult to solve. A Rubik's Cube has over 43 quintillion configurations, a big space to search through if you aren't clever about it. Learning is the process of acquiring patterns and methods to cut down on brute force searching. Number two, memory strengthens by retrieval. Retrieving knowledge strengthens memory more than seeing something for a second time. Testing knowledge isn't just a way of measuring what you know, it actively improves your memory. In fact, testing is one of the best study techniques researchers have discovered. Why is retrieval so helpful? Well, one way to think about it is that the brain economizes effort by remembering only those things that are likely to prove useful. If you always have an answer at hand, there's no real need to encode it in memory. In contrast, the difficulty associated with retrieval is a strong signal that you need to remember it. Retrieval only works if there's something to retrieve. This is why you need books, teachers, and classes. When memory fails, we fall back on the problem-solving search, which, depending on the size of the problem space, may fail utterly to give us the correct answer. However, once we've seen the answer, we'll learn more by retrieving it than by repeatedly viewing it. Number three, knowledge grows exponentially. How much you're able to learn depends on what you already know. Research finds that the amount of knowledge retained from a text depends on prior knowledge of the topic. This effect can even outweigh general intelligence in some situations. As you learn new things, you integrate them into what you already know. This integration provides more hooks for you to recall that information later. However, when you know little about a topic, you have fewer hooks to put new information on. This makes information easier to forget. Like a crystal growing from a seed, future learning is much easier once a foundation has been established. This process has limits, of course, or knowledge would accelerate indefinitely. 
Still, it's good to keep in mind because the early phase of learning is often the hardest and can give a misleading impression of the future difficulty you'll have within a field. Four, creativity is mostly copying. Few subjects are so misunderstood as creativity. We tend to imbue creative individuals with a near magical aura, but creativity is much more mundane in practice. In an impressive review of significant inventions, Matt Ridley argues that innovation results from an evolutionary process. Rather than springing into the world fully formed, new inventions are essentially random mutations of old ideas. When those new ideas prove useful, they expand to fill a new niche. Evidence for this view comes from the phenomenon of near-simultaneous innovations. Numerous times in the history, multiple, unconnected people have developed the same invention or idea, which suggests that these ideas were somehow nearby in the space of possibilities right before their discovery. Even in fine art, the importance of copying has often been neglected. Yes, many revolutions in art were explicit rejections of past trends, but the revolutionaries themselves were, almost without exception, steeped in the tradition that they rebelled against. Rebelling against the convention requires awareness of that convention in the first place. Number five, skills are specific. Transfer refers to the enhanced abilities in one task after practice or training on a different task. In research on transfer, a typical pattern shows up. One, practice at a task makes you better at it. Two, practice at a task helps with other similar tasks, usually ones that overlap in methods or knowledge. Three, practice at one task helps little with unrelated tasks, even if they seem to require the same broad ability like memory, critical thinking, or intelligence. Now, it's hard to make exact predictions about transfer because they depend on knowing both exactly how the human mind works and the structure of all knowledge. However, in more restricted domains, John Anderson has found that productions, if-then rules that operate on knowledge, form a fairly good match for the amount of transfer observed in intellectual skills. While skills may be specific, breadth creates generality. For instance, learning a word in a foreign language is only helpful when using or hearing that word. But if you know many words, you can say a lot of different things. Similarly, knowing one idea may matter little, but mastering many can give enormous breadth. Every extra year of education is shown to improve IQ by about one to five points, in part because the breadth of knowledge taught in school overlaps with that needed for real life and on intelligence tests. If you want to be smarter, there are no shortcuts. You'll have to learn a lot. But the converse is also true. Learning a lot may make you more intelligent than you might naively predict. Number six, mental bandwidth is extremely limited. We can only keep a few things in mind at any one time. Psychologist George Miller initially pegged that number at seven plus or minus two items, but more recent work has suggested the number is closer to four things. This incredibly narrow space is the bottleneck through which all learning, every idea, memory, and experience must flow if it is to become part of our long-term experience. Subliminal learning doesn't work. If you aren't paying attention, you aren't learning. The primary way we can be more efficient with learning is to ensure that the things that flow through that bottleneck are useful. Devoting bandwidth to irrelevant elements may slow us down. Since the 1980s, cognitive load theory has been used to explain how interventions that optimize or limit learning based on our mental bandwidth. This research finds that, one, 
Problem solving may be counterproductive for beginners. Novices do better when shown worked examples instead. Two, materials should be designed to avoid needing to flip between pages or parts of a diagram to understand the material. Three, redundant information can actually impede learning. And four, complex ideas can be learned more easily when presented first in parts. Number seven, success is the best teacher. We learn more from success than failure. The reason is that the problem spaces that we encounter are typically large and most solutions are wrong. Knowing what works cuts down on the possibilities dramatically, whereas experiencing failure only tells you one specific thing doesn't work. A good rule is to aim for a roughly 85% success rate in your learning. You can do this by calibrating the difficulty of your practice, so with the textbook open or closed, with or without a tutor, simple or complex problems, or by seeking extra training and assistance when falling below this threshold. If you succeed much above this threshold, you're probably not seeking hard enough problems and are practicing routines instead of learning new skills. Number eight. We reason through examples. How people can think logically is an age-old puzzle. Since Immanuel Kant, we have known that logic can't be acquired from experience. Somehow we must already know the rules of logic or an illogical mind could never have invented them. But if that's so, why do we so often fail at the kinds of problems logicians invent? In 1983, Philip Johnson Laird proposed a solution we reason by constructing a mental model of the situation. So, to test a syllogism like, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is immortal, we actually imagine a little collection of men, all of whom are immortal, and imagine that Socrates is one of them. And then we deduce that the syllogism is true through this inspection. Johnson Laird suggested that this mental model-based reasoning also explains our logical deficiencies. We struggle with logical statements that require us to examine multiple models. The more models that we need to construct and review in order to get a correct answer, the more likely we are to make mistakes. Related research by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky shows that this example-based reasoning can lead us to mistake our fluency in recalling examples for the probability of an event pattern. Reasoning through examples has several implications. One, learning is often faster through examples than abstract descriptions. Two, learning a general pattern, we often need to have many examples. And three, we must watch out when we're making broad inferences based on a few examples. So, are you sure you've actually examined all the possible cases? Number nine, knowledge becomes invisible with experience. Skills become increasingly automated through practice. This reduces our conscious awareness of the skill, making it require less of our precious working memory capacity to perform. So, think of driving a car. At first, using the blinkers and brakes was painfully deliberate. After years of driving, you barely think about it. The increased automation of skills has drawbacks, however. One is that it becomes much harder to teach a skill to someone. When knowledge becomes tacit, it becomes harder to make it explicit again the way that you make a decision. Experts frequently underestimate the amount of basic skills that are required to perform their tasks because having long been automated, they don't seem to factor much into their daily thinking. Another drawback is that automated skills are less open to conscious control. This can lead to plateaus in progress where you keep doing things the same way you've always done them, even when it's no longer appropriate. 
Seeking more difficult challenges becomes vital because you need these to bump you out of your automaticity and force you to try better solutions. Number 10. Relearning is relatively fast. After years spent in school, how many of us could still pass the final exams needed to graduate? Faced with classroom questions, many adults sheepishly admit they recall little. Forgetting is the unavoidable fate of any skill we don't use regularly. Hermann Ebbinghaus found that knowledge quickly tapers off at an exponential rate, most quickly at the beginning and slowing down as time elapses. Yet there is a silver lining. Relearning is usually much faster than initial learning. Some of this can be understood as a threshold problem. So imagine memory strength ranges between 0 and 100. And under some threshold, say 35, memory is inaccessible. Thus, if a memory dropped from 36 to 34 in strength, you would forget what you'd known. But even a little boost from relearning would repair the memory enough to recall it. In contrast, a new memory, starting at zero, would require more work. Connectionist models, inspired by human neural networks, offer another argument for the potency of relearning. In these models, a computational neural network may take hundreds of iterations to reach the optimal point. And if you jiggle these connections in this network, it will forget the right answer and just respond no better than chance. However, if you train it again, it will relearn the optimal response much faster the next time. Relearning is a nuisance, especially since struggling with previously easy problems can be super discouraging, yet it's no reason not to learn deeply and broadly. Even forgetting knowledge can be revived much faster than starting from scratch. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website at scotthyoung.com.